Please feel free to ask your questions and uh, perhaps uh, begin with someone who hasn't asked a question already. Let's see if there's uh, anyone who's been shy and waiting for the others to speak first. Anyone who's not asked a question who'd like to ask anything? Okay. Then the other thing I thought, so anyone who's asked a question and I either um, forgot their part two or their part three, or I answered a question that, that they didn't ask, <laughs> kind of missed the point of what, what you were asking, uh, and also please feel free to re- repeat something in case that I uh, glossed over or missed the, the key bit that you really wanted to have some word on that, uh, that got missed out. The gentleman with the brown t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just to, to follow on with the question about Vinaya. Yes. I'm particularly interested to know how it operates in the, ah, in the Western yes, world. Yes, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Seeing, uh, seeing as if the whole system is two and a half thousand years old, modern California or, or London could be a more foreign land, I think, to the land of the Buddha. Uh, so, so I'm interested in that. Very good. Um, I knew there was something I left out. <laughs> Just didn't know what. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. So when um, uh, when Ajahn Chah was first invited to visit London in 1977, the little monastery there, he didn't really have an intention to stay. It was just to kind of take a look-see. But after a, a week or two, uh, less than two weeks, um, he realized... Uh, this is something worth supporting. And so he wrote in his little diary, he said, uh, uh, I thought that my work as a monk was finished, but I now realize it's not, and that spreading the Dharma in the world is uh, still something to be done. So at that point he then told Ajahn Sumedho, when I go back to Thailand, you're staying. <laughs> so the rest of the team were a little bit surprised by that. So then when Ajahn Chah left them there in London and they asked questions about, well, uh, what should we do in terms of adapting to local customs or to, to um, you know, changing particular things? Yeah. It, was, it was interesting that the, uh, Ajahn Chah was very liberal. He said, well, whatever you find that you need to change, uh, like if you need to change the, the, you know, the, the robes or the chanting or anything like that, yeah, you can change that, no problem. He said, but you have to go on arms round every day. So I thought, Really? Yeah, and he was really like, you have to, you have to, you have to. So he was kind of strangely insistent on that. But uh, other things that you'd think of as being more crucial, like exactly how you wore the robes or, or um, uh, other customs, he was sort of, you know, whatever, you know, whatever fits in. So uh, uh, that had two results. One, and the, part of the reason why he said you have to go on arms around every day, even though they said, but you know, we, we go out, but like nobody gives us anything. He said, you have to, you have to fly the Buddha's flag. And that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the four heavenly messengers, the four Devaduta. So the four signs that, uh, that they say you know, cause uh, the Bodhisattvas to leave the household life and to go forth as a Buddha, become a Buddha, is the sign of old age, sickness, death, and the religious seeker, the Samana. So he said, you have to be the fourth heavenly messenger. That's your job. So even if people don't know anything about Buddhism, they don't know what you are, they don't know about 
uh, uh, you know, the Theravada or anything. So you, as a religious figure, walking along the street in a calm, composed way, that's, that's a Devaduta, that's a heavenly messenger. So that's your job. And he was like, you can't bend on this. So they did. And actually that was how the, um, the forest at Chidhurst uh, was offered to the community, was because they were on their, their arms around for non-existent arms, uh, walking through Hampstead Heath one morning, and a guy who was jogging came past them stopped and got into conversation. Long story short, he had a forest and he was looking for some forest wardens to help him to bring it back to being native English woodland. And they were some forest monks looking for a forest. <laughs> so he started to visit the, the, uh, the monastery and kind of slowly this thing about him owning a forest came into conversation. And eventually he donated the whole thing. And so that's why they, in 1979, then they sold the house, the houses, the two little houses on Haverstock Hill and moved down to Chithurst. So again, Ajahn Chah, in terms of Vinaya, he said, well, if you need to change something, change it. So when Ajahn Sumedha first settled there, then he was bombarded by people saying, you've got to change this, you can't change that. Only hippies, only hippies sit on the floor. You know, in the West, we sit on chairs. And so previous incumbents and, and monastic groups of the Hampstead Vihara, they had all their meditation on chairs. But he thought, well, I like sitting on the floor. I don't, if you don't really need to change it, let's not change it. So that was their mode. You know, we'll just do it as we know how to do it and then change it if we need to. So then summer was kind of fine. They would go out barefoot on arms round, as you do in Thailand. As the autumn came and uh, the weather got cooler and then the, the winter came and the snow was on the ground, then every day they would sort of come back from their arms round and they said, Ajahn Sumedha, your feet are blue. You know, your toes are going to drop off. You're going to get frostbite. You know, please, 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 wear sandals. You know. Okay. So they started wearing sandals on the arms round. And so then when there's something really needed to be changed, then we changed it. But then the, uh, the, the basic things that people would say, you know, you've got to use money. It's really impractical for, for monks to, to not handle money. You know, you've got to travel on the tube, you've got to go places, you need to use money. And, but Ajahn Sumedha said, well, let's just see whether that's true or not. And so he realized it's not true. You can get about it. People know you don't have money, you don't accept money, you don't own money. Then the world adapts. And if you don't have money, you know, if people invite you, then they provide the transport, or they send you a ticket, and if they don't provide the transport, you don't go, <laughs> or you walk. <laughs> and so we've, we don't use money. I don't have a bank account. I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have any debt. Uh, so then, uh, and then the, the rules about food, so we were kind of a strictly a one meal a day practice people. That's more of a, what they call a dutanga, or ascetic discipline. So as long as you eat between um, dawn and noon, then it's allowable to eat many times. So here, you know, we have a breakfast and a kind of a, a biscuit with tea at mid-morning, <laughs> then the meal offering. Um, and so that uh, uh, he decided we'll just stay with the one meal a day practice. And then what happened was, just after Chithurst had opened, there was a kind of crumbled down Victorian mansion with like four rooms were inhabitable out of 22. So the, and it was filled with dry rot. So there was an amazing amount of work to do. So we all kind of <laughs> got pretty buff, kind of climbing around on the roof and you know, drilling holes in the walls to put in damp coarse proofing and dry rot and kind of clearing out the dry rot. Uh, so it's very physical, very active. 
And so for a number of people, uh, the, you know, the one meal a day, we just would have a cup of tea, like a milk, milk tea early in the morning, and then have the main meal about 10.30. Uh, so for some people, it is we're kind of keeling over. And then when the winter came, it was, it was even harder. And so um, uh, a monk uh, who was, was a New Zealander, um, had been living in Thailand, he came and joined us, and he said, well, you know, there's this sutta in the Book of the Tens about the ten benefits of rice gruel. You know, yagu. And so, um, let me introduce this to you, Lumpur Sumater. <laughs> so then uh, he thought, yeah, that sounds reasonable. The Buddha actually praises having yagu, having you know, rice porridge in the morning. So then we started to have, you know, literally rice porridge. And then, uh, so then, um, that's a, uh, a, a, a differing standard from what we have in Thailand. But he was thinking, okay, the weather's cold, and people are um, uh, you know, needy of this. And so then an adaptation was made. Similarly, um, when Ajahn, Ajahn Chah came, um, you know, we, we, in Thailand you always go bare-shouldered, you know, inside the monastery, you have a bare shoulder. And, uh, you know, if it's really cold, you might have a shawl that you can wrap around you, but usually you're, you're bare-shouldered. Um, but uh, when Ajahn Chah came uh, in 77, um, uh, then uh, the, you know, the weather was quite warm and bright. When he came again in 79, it was a really cold spring. It actually snowed in May. And so they were at this, uh, the Hampstead Monastery, and, and they said, Oh, look, Lumpur, it's snowing, it's snowing. They said, shut the window. <laughs> it's freezing. <laughs> so they, uh, so, you know, they had to sort of deal with, uh, you know, what's, what, what are you going to do when the weather's cold? And so what Ajahn Chah saw was that what was happening was that the monks were sort of wearing uh, pullovers and sweatshirts, and, and you had kind of a great array of different sort of Sleeves coming out from under the robe, and and so, and said, "This is, looks pretty scruffy." So instead of having it over one shoulder inside the monastery and having all these different pullovers and sweatshirts and whatnot, just wear the robe over both shoulders inside the monastery. So that's what we did, which is pretty radical. Kind of, you'd never do that in Thailand. You always have the robe over one shoulder inside the monastery. But he said, "It's tidier to have it over both shoulders." So when I came back from Thailand at the end of 79, that was the standard in England. You wore the robe over both shoulders in the monastery and whatever you liked to keep warm underneath because it was, it was freezing. And Chidhurst House at that time, it was this, you know, like a crumbling Victorian mansion. There was no central heating. There was just no heating in most of the rooms, so it was cold. Sort of dripping condensation on the walls. And all that. So then, um, the same uh, monk that came from New Zealand, he had had a friend from the Korean tradition, Venerable Hamwal, also a New Zealander, who had spent several years in a Korean Zen monastery. And uh, when they were together in New Zealand, he noticed this, this uh, other New Zealand monk from Korea had this really nifty kind of jacket. It's kind of padded jacket. <laughs> they said, well, that's, that's pretty neat. Can I get the design? He was quite a good tailor, this monk. And so when he came to England and we had this you know, we were wearing the robe over both shoulders, he, he said to Ajahn Sumedha, well, you know, the Koreans have really cold winters, and they develop these kind of jackets that they wear underneath their robes. So maybe if we had one style of jacket modelled on the Korean form, then we could use that. And so then we could have the robe over one shoulder and have a sort of uh, a stylized, a sort of same kind of jacket um, that we would all wear. And so Ajahn Sumedha said, okay, Go ahead, sew it up, and make a few samples, and we'll try it out. So that became what we wore. 
So us Theravadans were wearing a kind of classical Korean jacket uh, uh, as a sort of uh, as a garment. So then, when Thai monks would come to visit, they go, "What's that?" You know. But then also they they were saying, "Well, this is a foreign country, and this is you know it's cold here, so maybe maybe it's okay." Also, uh, when they um, uh, the the Thai monastery in London, what Buddha Padipa, uh, they would go strictly bare shouldered but their heating bill was something like £35,000 a year, which in that era was a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah, and also, I was also telling Ajahn Jivako, the, the monastery was kind of poor, so we actually, the, 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 the trust that looked after the monastery's finances, at a certain point had to borrow money from the cat's donation tin. Now, people would give money to the cat for cat food. So the, the English Sangha Trust had to borrow money from Doris's, Doris's tin to get some building supplies. So we paid, yeah, she was paid back. Yeah. Doris was the cat. Doris the cat. So, so 35000 a year for heating was like absolutely no way. So the, in terms of the, the Vinaya standards, we've tried to keep things as strictly as possible. So every monastery, we have about 30 monasteries in Western countries around the world. So we have about six in the UK. Uh, Italy, Switzerland, uh, Portugal, Norway, Germany, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, USA, Brazil is the newest one, Brazil. And they all run on the same basis. So nobody has any money. Everything's done on free will donations. We don't advertise, we don't fundraise. Um, we live on whatever the world offers. We don't sell anything. Um, yeah. <coughs> all the we have a retreat center at Amravati with about twenty retreats a year. They're all free, no charge. Everything's just done on donations. Um, and we have an overhead of um, about a thousand pounds a day, Amravati. Overhead. That's not building projects. That's just running expenses. About a thousand pounds a day. And that's all just free will donations. Nothing is sold, we don't advertise, we don't fundraise, just whatever comes in. And that's the standard that Ajahn Chah established. So in terms of Vinaya, then also celibacy, we keep all of those rules equally strictly. So um, no sexual activity, no kind of girlfriends, boyfriends, or in between <laughs> of any kind. Um, yeah, any kind of sexual uh, stimulation or anything is verboten very strictly and so that those standards are very very strictly kept and um, the, uh, the the motivation for people coming into the monastery also in the in the west is almost nobody comes in because their parents are, po- are forcing them in like, <laughs> this is a good idea you know go to the monastery that doesn't happen <laughs> in western families and so there's a very high degree of motivation People come there because they're going against the family wishes. So that it's um, the, the degree of integrity is, is, is very good. And also um, the tradition of wandering, like we're a wandering order, we're, we're homeless. You know, we're, anagarika means a homeless one. So we are anagara. So you reflect on your dwelling, even if you've lived in the same kuti, the same hut for 20 years, it's still a roof over the head for one night. So we we keep up the tradition of wandering, and um, uh, so I, I, um, for myself, I went for a, a walk from the monastery in Sussex, 
Chidhurst to the one in Northumberland about it's about an 800 mile route very windy route through England I, I travelled with a layman um, but we basically were living on what we were given along the way um, he had 17 pounds when we left Chidhurst and we had 17 pounds when we arrived at, at home <laughs> but nowadays when the, the nuns or the monks go on this it's called Tudong these kind of lone wandering walks sometimes alone, sometimes with one or two others. They, they don't go with a lay person. And often they're trying to avoid lay supporters. So that, because people want to make sure that you're fed and housed and you, so they often have to kind of dodge the, the kind of well-meaning devotees who are trying to make, look after them. And you can live on, on alms food by, given by random strangers for months. months. Um, it's very rare that, en- that anybody actually goes hungry. Ajahn Jivako has done a lot of Tudongi. Australia walked from Melbourne to Sydney. And what, you didn't miss a day? Got a coffee every day as well. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some serious coffee barometers. <laughs> one, of, one of our monks walked all the way from the Bay Area down to uh, Metaforest Monastery in, in San Diego County. And he actually put on weight. <laughs> he was quite embarrassed how chubby he was by the time he There's all those lattes on Highway 1. Starbucks yeah. Starbucks, uh, Starbucks uh, along the Highway 1, on the coastal highway. It's like a lot of muffins. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that, and that, that wandering tradition and living on whatever lands in your bowl each day, that's kind of living on faith, that's part of it. So I would say that the... Um, in some ways, it's radically different. You know, the, this this order is the oldest human institution still functioning under its original bylaws. Not to make any claims, but that's the fact. You know. And so it's amazing that it still functions, but it does. Because in, in a sense, people haven't really changed much in 25 centuries. It's, it's, kind of, it's almost alarming how much of the Vinaya applies absolutely accurately in this day and age. And... Uh, the, um, when when uh, uh, another interesting dialogue between Ajahn Sumedha and Ajahn Chah was uh, when he was in his early years of training and, and uh, I think before the International Forest Monastery had started uh, Ajahn Chah had said to him you know, Sumedha, do you, do you think you'll ever go back to the West and, li- and live as a monk and teach in the West? And he said, no how could you live as a monk in, in, in America or in the West? And who who would offer arms food? You know, because you get so used to the the sort of incredible uh, wall of devotion and the sort of uh, uh, ever present sense of support and faith in, in Thailand and in northeast Thailand in particular. And so he said, "How could you do that in America?" And then Ajahn Chah's immediate comment was, "Do you mean to tell me there are no kind people in America?" <laughs> and he said, oh. <laughs> And, uh, and he said, at that moment, I knew I'd be going back to the West. But it really hadn't crossed his mind. You know, just, uh, he'd never thought of it. And then he said, okay, I guess that's true. And that's the fact. Because oftentimes when you're on these two-dog walks, the people who put food in your bowl, they don't, need, they don't know what Buddhism is. They, they don't know what you are. They just see you as a you know, religious figure and you're standing there. Uh, the difference in Thailand is if you're on the arms round, you walk along and people kind of are waiting by the side of the road and you stop and they put food in your bowl. In, in Britain, in particular, people are very polite. They don't want to interrupt you. So if you're walking along, they'll just get out of the way. They won't stop you. So you have to do the kind of Indian method of arms, uh, which is standing still. 
So you go to the middle of a village or a town, you just stand in one spot and look at the ground. And you're not even allowed to hold your bowl out. You have to have it sort of partially concealed. And it's kind of interesting when they, they started up in London and, and they, uh, Ajahn Chah said, you know, the monks have got to go on arms round every day. Some of the people on the trust, the, the inviting group, that oh, this is terrible. This is going to be going to be accused of begging, and you know, going to get arrested, and how's that going to be? So they um, they they consulted. They they asked the local police, you know, if um, if, if monks go out for arms on the street, you know, uh, do you think that would be considered begging? And the, the first word from the police was, yeah, I think it would be actually. <laughs> so they thought, hmm. So then they employed a, 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 a barrister, a, a QC, and they got a they got a a, a what's called a ruling, and so uh, this barrister um, sat down with the Vinaya books, and uh, kind of went through. Okay, let, let now let's see exactly what are your rules about arms round, and then he, he kind of went through it all in, in great detail, and he looked at the laws about begging and vagrancy, and then he came back, um, and this was the kind of the most expensive thing that the English Sangha Trust had put money into for a long time, just a couple of hundred quid, which is a lot of money in those days. And then the barrister said, he had this kind of, this smile on his face apparently, he said, this is very remarkable. It's as if the Buddha predicted the 1848 Vagrancy Act, <laughs> and that uh, he's driven a line straight down the middle of it, because, you know, your rules prevent you from stopping anybody, from getting in anybody's way. They prevent you from asking for anything. You know, that you're not even allowed to hold your bowl out to indicate that, um, that, that the, the fact you have to sort of have your bowl of half under your robe or, or, or not kind of you know, as a, you know, held in a sort of provocative way, you know, kind of a sort of an appealing way. He said, you know, this is remarkable. It's like the, so th- so my, my ruling is that this is entirely in accord with the 1848 Vagrancy Act and, there is, uh, and uh, you're totally free to carry out your arms round according to the, the stipulations that your own rules require. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what we've done ever since. So that uh, the, um, the things that we've had to change uh, have been minor, really, you know, adapting to the cold climate, so going on arms round or walking with, with shoes on is kind of normal. But the important things like um, celibacy, not using money, um, having everything freely available in the monastery. Um, those are, uh, are, um, uh, are kind of very much part of our lives. So, this is the question at the back there. The lady with the pale green shirt and the foot on the chair. Um, good evening, Vedra Bhagajan. Um, so this question is about, uh, I mean, we all got the Buddha Dhamma when we were adults. Yes. So I have seen a documentary called The True Little Monk. True Little Monk. Huh? Yes, which was shot at uh, Thailand, in the monastery of Thailand. And... Um, um, that was just a program that was held there. But do you also have something which could be used here in India for children so that they could get the Dhamma um, earlier? 
I don't have anything. <laughs> um, well, that uh, 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 it's interesting that you've seen that. Um, that was a, a program that was launched by a particular group who are trying to uh, sort of introduce or kind of reintroduce Dharma practice to the sort of uh, wealthy, uh, educated middle class in Thailand, so that they they did a, a kind of uh, um, I don't know what you call it, like a a um, an invitation to uh, a lot of well-to-do families and, and high society people, particular schools with high-achieving students, and said yeah, they want to have this program. So they're for people who are from a, a kind of quite a westernized background and families who have often fallen away from Buddhism or don't have a, a much of a feeling for traditional Buddhism, and they're trying to to um, present that as a um, something that is applicable and useful, and meaningful for. Uh, for young people who are um, being educated in the West or who are living in modern society and such like. Uh, so the True Little Monk people uh, consulted me and had, uh, did a couple, I've um, been interviewed a couple of times by them. They talked with me before they set up the program with Ajahn Kevali at Wat Nanachat and Ajahn uh, Anek's monastery, Wat Pa Sangam. Um, when, they, when they interviewed me, I said, uh, well, you know, if, if this is to be spread around the world, if you're aiming to broadcast this around the world, one of the first questions that anyone in the Western country is going to ask is, where are the girls? Okay, these the, you've got boys here, what about the girls? And they went, because oh. in Thailand it's a, you know, the, it's a very divided reality. So to be a, a monk or to be a male novice is something highly venerated and something applauded and, and uh, revered. To be a nun... Uh, unfortunately, it means you're a social failure. You're kind of you can't you couldn't find a husband. You couldn't have children. You're a kind of reject, or the family doesn't want you. So it's complete. Unfortunately, sadly, I'm not maligning it. It's just that's how it is. It's kind of right at the bottom of the scale. So if you're a, a male in robes, you're kind of revered and up there. And if you're a, a woman in robes, then it's like oh, okay. Sad but true. So I say, well, if you really want to promote, uh, you know. Buddhist values amongst the educated middle classes, <laughs> you want to get some uh, a meaningful program for girls as well, so they can take temporary ordination as nuns and uh, follow the same kind of program. And there is a particular uh, nun in Thailand called Mechi Sansani. I won't dwell just on the women's issues, but I feel it's very significant. <laughs> yeah, Amravati is a, a double monastery, we have nuns as well as monks. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, you know, and in the West, the in interest and commitment for women's monastic training is equal to men, whereas in Asia, it's, it's, they're kind of different worlds a lot of the time. Less so in the meditation monasteries, but often it's, it's very, very stratified. And um, I was just talking with Praveen a couple of days ago. He said, we've sent from Sankasya, where he's from, they have a whole kind of Buddhist revival movement there. He said, we've sent 200 children out to train in different monasteries. So I said, how many girls? He said, Oh yes, it's not. Yeah, it's difficult for girls. It's difficult for girls, both for safety and you know, and the kind of obvious um, uh, concerns for their well-being, but also culturally, it's like the, you know, the it's kind of monk gets the the attention. But I feel that there needs to be the, the as much of an equal provision for monastic training, monastic opportunities for women as well. So in Thailand. Uh, there's a, a nun called Mechi Sansani who does run programs for, uh, for young girls. She actually brings groups of, uh, of her students to India sometimes, the holy places. So her little kind of crew of nunlets 
Yeah. Yeah, wearing, you know, shaven heads and wearing white robes and, and so forth. And she, they, they have rigorous training with her. Um, and, uh, and I feel it's, it's, she's a very, very skillful teacher and you know, very wise, very, very kind, very well motivated. So I would say if there's something for children, uh, young people in India, you definitely, to the degree possible, you want to establish things for girls as well as boys. And that if you want to appeal to people in the modern age, gender equality is kind of front center. That's not what you hear in Thailand probably. <laughs> but you know, I, I live in the middle of that. And you, know, you have a very kind of uh, you know, imbalanced system in the Buddhist world. So one of the big tasks of the current century, or next couple of centuries, <laughs> is, is sort of uh, making the monastic training and, and Buddhist uh, teachings and, and practices available in equal measure for, for women as well as men, not just have a kind of half the human population having that opportunity. So in terms of, of what happens, um, the, the kind of the True Little Monk program, uh, that's not my program. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we have family programs, uh, so that as uh, uh, about five different events a year at Amravati, because Amravati used to be a school, well you've been there, you know. So it's quite a large campus. So we have five different family events in the year where children come with their parents or at least one of their parents over different lengths of time. So that children are able to be introduced to Buddhist practices, Buddhist themes and such like. But um, temporary ordinations for youngsters is, has been pretty few and far between, even in the West. So how you might establish something here in India for that, I think it's a bit of a distance down the track. But I think if you, uh, uh, if you take notes from people like you know, the, the, the folks in Thailand who've done that, or where um, monasteries where they do have a, um, a training system, uh, like going to see Nechi Sansani in Bangkok, or um, there's quite a number of places in Thailand where they have like a, a male novices training schools, where they have like two or three hundred novices that uh, uh, they go there for a few years, you know, two or three years, three or four years. I went to one down in the south in Songkla, Lumpur Opat. Lumpur Opat, who's a very highly revered monk in the north of Thailand. He has hundreds of novices at his place. I think the top ranked, hmm? the best grades. And yeah, they, they, academically they get pretty uh, impressive grades as well. Um, so there are places to visit. So I think if you're interested in that side of things, go and meet those people. You know, talk with them and say, well, what do you do? How do you do this? And uh, uh, also um, in uh, Shravasti, uh, a Korean monk, uh, De In Sunim, where I stayed for the rains retreat in 2004, uh, he was um, he, uh, he's, a, he's a very interesting monk. Uh, he, he's from the Korean tradition, and um, he was, he, as according to his own account, trying to get out of responsibilities in Korea. <laughs> so he came to India. So I'll spend a few years in India, maybe they'll forget about me. So he, he started traveling and living here in India, and then ended up settling in Shravasti. And uh, so then he found himself grumbling and complaining about the Indian monks who would come and beg in the Jetavana. These monks, they're no good, they're not trained. And he said, well, here I am grumbling and complaining about all these bad monks. What am I doing to help create some good monks? And he realized, nothing. So I thought, well, okay, I should do what I can to help Indian 
people to, uh, who want to go forth to train. So he developed a whole novices training center at his monastery in the, the Korean temple in uh, Shravasti, near Balrampur. So that was all underway when the, my uh, 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 last few days in India in 2005, he asked me to conduct the uh, ordination for about six novices, Indian novices. So all the novices, they're not Koreans, they're Indians. Um, so these Indian teenage boys taking the ten precepts of Samaniras. So I'm not sure where his program is uh, is at, or uh, but that's what he was aiming to do, and he was building a lot of, of uh, rooms and classrooms and such like at the Korean temple. So go visit Shravasti and uh, see what uh, has been happening there. So I think if you're really, that's an area that's interesting, go and meet the people who've been trying to do it and see what works, what doesn't work, and then take your lead from that. Party, yeah. It depends from uh, what I just asked. We all know very well that we are not demarcated only as male or female. We have transgenders also. And uh, are there, is there any tradition anywhere? I don't think Thailand, but anywhere else where transgenders have been willing to come over and going for ordination. I couldn't hear that very clearly. I said, we have transgenders also, oh, yes, yes. not necessarily male and female, mm -hmm. and has there been any tradition anywhere where transgenders have been willing to come over for ordination? Um, the, uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. We've had, uh, over the years, quite a, a, a number of transgendered people who want to come and train or li uh, live in the monastery or come and do retreats. And so um, we, we provide accommodation. But, but from the Buddha's time, um, if your gender was uh, indistinct or someone had changed gender, then they weren't able to enter the community of nuns or monks uh, from the very beginning. And that, that's... Um, that might seem unfair, but that was the, the standard uh, uh, established by the Buddha. Uh, homosexuality is not a problem. Someone who's, uh, who's been uh, active as a, a, a homosexual woman or a man, a, a lesbian or a gay person, uh, that's not a problem. But if the gender is indistinct, then uh, the Buddha said they couldn't take full ordination. So sometimes you find uh, uh, such people that will take the eight precepts and then live in a monastery. Uh, but uh, it's a lot to do, uh, uh, and there's different opinions about this, there's, there's uh, not a lot of explanation why in the Vinaya, it's, but it's, it's, it's an extensive sort of definitions uh, within the, the scriptures as to what kind of um, variations of gender, and so those who have indistinct gender or changed gender uh, or have no gender, the, the term is pandaka that's used to describe um, uh, that that condition for people, and um, it's it's uh, in, in the discussions that we've had over the years because this point has come up many many times. It seems to have been the practical consideration, so that if someone was say born as a, a man and then is now living as a woman, that if they want to become a nun, then some of the nuns will be quite comfortable with that, and some of them won't be. If you're in the in the shower block and someone comes in who's, uh, who's a transgendered person, somebody will be okay with that, coming sort of sharing the 
shower block with you and some people won't be. And so that um, uh, the understanding is that, or the, the, the kind of supposition is that it was through those practical considerations how divisive that can be within a community that uh, the Buddha said that um, such, such people can't be allowed to, to take on the full ordination as nuns or monks. So maybe that can come under uh, consideration in the future, but it, it's like it's it's not a, a later text. It's right there, you know, in the Buddha Vajna. So and, and quite detailed, you know, the different different kinds of of a sort of ge- uh, uh, gender um, variation is the it's it's it covers a big spectrum, and so even people who spontaneously change gender on a regular basis, it's like that those who change gender every fortnight or even. Uh, apparently that that was catered for as well. I've never seen that. <laughs> or heard, even heard of that. But it's like yes, there is a condition whereby people change gender on a regular basis. So it kind of goes back and forth. And that uh, if that's the case, then then they can't go. They can't go forth. So um, when people who are transgendered well, want to come and stay in the monastery, then we have a, a particular uh, accommodation that we use for families, that both women and men and, and uh, Anybody can stay in. So we make provision there. Also in the retreat centre just uh, this year, uh, there's actually, um, on our Thai language retreat, there's a transgendered person who's been coming very, very regularly, and they get a single room. You know, so that, uh, because even though people can, should be okay, there's, not everybody's okay. And so then it, uh, uh, it's out of that sort of practical sense of... of um, not wanting to be divisive, then the person who is transgendered is, uh, is sort of asked to, okay, um, uh, uh, is it okay with you that we give you a single room and that has, you know, we have your own bathroom rather than sharing with, with the others? And so that we have that kind of conversation. And then uh, um, the, uh, uh, so far, it's that we've always found a way to be able to accommodate such people. And that... Um, even you know those sort of in in transition that uh, you know not this winter retreat the previous winter retreat there was someone who was transitioning from female to male so she uh, and she'd been a guest for quite some time as a she <laughs> and so that she was she she was used to staying with the nuns but her voice had dropped a whole kind of octave and she uh, and she uh, very definitely start, had started to, to look like a he so then Aja we, can I talk to you about so and so? You know, because uh, um, we're not comfortable, and so it was. It was exactly this issue that um, some people were okay with with him being in the the women's area, but because uh, that's where, when she'd been in the female form, she'd been staying. But it, she was in transition, so there was this a kind of steady stream of what do we do about this? Or uh, uh, you know, some of the sisters are not comfortable about this because you know. Her voice is really, I mean, well, she's a guy, really. <laughs> and it's those practical considerations that, and you could tell, oh, this is why the Buddha made those rulings, because some things, I think it's really important that, you know, it's, we, we, you know that, uh, that uh, this person is looked after her and we make space for her, oh, I'm sorry, him. <laughs> and then others like, well, no, yeah, I'm, I'm okay for him to be here, but uh, he shouldn't be in the nuns vihara. And then just the amount of time and energy that that took, and so if someone was being taken on as a, because it's a lifetime commitment, then you're asking to for everybody to accommodate that um, uh, in an ongoing way. 
So um, we do our best. And, uh, but it's, it's, uh, uh, if you're waiting for, to find a mon- uh, if you're waiting to have a monastery that doesn't have tricky situations or difficult decisions to make, then you're, it's going to be a long search. <laughs> Does it not mean that there needs to be more awareness and sensitivity on this issue among the monks or when the training is going on of the monks? Yes, yeah, people are, um, you know, that they, uh, people are encouraged to be, um, say, sensitive and respectful. And, that, um, and so that's, uh, that's the case. So if, if, for example, someone, the transgender person is staying in the monastery and somebody makes some kind of um, critical remark or negative remark, then they'll be they'll be pulled up on that, you know, that uh, because you know their, their their mind is still the same as everybody else, you know. That, uh, and the the point of a monastery is for the liberation of the heart of the of the mind. So that that's the primary con- the primary concern. So you you um, uh, you know, you're trying to relate to all all beings, all, all people in a uh, in a profoundly respectful way. Okay, this uh, gentleman with the turquoise t-shirt. Sometimes uh, we have, uh, sometimes we don't know what is good, uh, what is not good in in our life, because uh, in modern time many things uh, like mixed. And uh, my question: How we can increase uh, vijaya for? uh, Increase what? Vijaya, like. uh, uh, separate the wisdom, like uh, how we can know what is good, uh-huh. and what is not good. <laughs> good question. <laughs> the uh, well, the the terms that uh, are used in the in the Theravada, uh, in the Pali, is kusala and akusala. So it doesn't really mean kind of good and bad and, and not good or good and bad in the way that that is used in in English. Uh, but it, it really means wholesome and unwholesome. So that the word wholesome um, is, a, is uh, what it, it means, the word whole is in it. So wholesome, or what leads to wholeness. Uh, the word holiness is also um, related to that. So that uh, rather than the idea of a, an absolute good or an absolute bad, and usually the Buddha speaks in terms of what is kusala and akusala, wholesome and unwholesome. And those are defined by what is wholesome is uh, so what leads to, uh, say, harmony between yourself and others, what leads to peacefulness, what leads to um, a diminishing of greed and aversion and delusion. So that can be considered the wholesome. What leads to a, a lack of complication and sort of distraction. So that can be uh, sort of in the, the wholesome category. What is unwholesome is what leads to uh, division, a disharmony between yourself and others, that leads to a, a large number of needs, to neediness, uh, leads to co- uh, comple- uh, complexification and uh, complication. Uh, so that, and that can be sort of within the unwholesome category. But to some degree, everyone's going to vary. Um, uh, most uh, reliable, the most reliable set of measures to use is the, for a lay person is the five precepts. So that um, that was laid down by the Buddha as say, okay, these are the areas where we basically these are the areas where we really get lost, where the reptile brain is most active. 
So in terms of violence and aggression, um, yeah. killing, uh, in terms of property, ownership and stealing, in terms of sexual desire and uh, sexual relations uh, and the use of sense pleasure, uh, uh, where we uh, say uh, overstep the boundaries, um, then with deceit, uh, the fourth precept is against lying. So that means, uh, and lying is almost always connected with seeking self-advantage. It's about something for me or for, for my family or for my group. You know, we lie to get something. We lie to get our own way. We lie to, to make an impression. So um, those uh, um, uh, first four precepts and then the fifth precept against using intoxicants. So that the, the Buddha laid those out as, uh, say, um, these are the areas where we, where we most easily get lost, where the pull to create the unwholesome is strongest. Like reacting to a situation with aggression. Like, I don't want green flies to eat my roses, therefore they should die. My roses are important, more important than the life of those insects, therefore they die. Or, you know, or, more, or worse killing than that. You know, but, uh, um, so, or that this is technically this other person's property. Um, yeah, the, the government wants to tax me, but I don't think I should pay those taxes. You know, I, I've got better use for that money than to give it to the government that I don't respect. Therefore, I will lie on my tax forms. I'm not reading anybody's mind, by the way. So that we, we mo the Buddha laid out the five precepts as the areas where we get lost most easily and we create the unwholesome. But essentially, it's up to each individual to see that for ourselves. <clears throat> so it might seem a bit risky to be your own moral guardian, <laughs> you know, that I should judge what's right or wrong. But essentially, um, that's uh, what the Buddha is encouraging, is that you, know, you see for yourself, okay, this leads to conflict, this leads to confusion. If I act from an angry impulse, this is the result. There's regret, there's division, there's, there's stress. Okay. If I act from a generous or a respectful impulse, there's, there's a sense of comfort and ease and openness. Okay. So that the five precepts are like, okay, here's a map. <laughs> you might need this. Um, and then it, that helps us to recognize where we get lost and to help us not to get lost. But essentially it's up to each one of us to, to recognize that. Also, you have the laws of the country. Most countries, uh, their laws are built around a similar version to the five precepts, or at least the first four of them. So, killing, stealing, uh, sexual misconduct, in terms of, um, say, taking advantage of other people, or, like, uh, or um, say, not just cheating on your spouse, but you know, the, where there's some kind of power difference like a teacher is taking advantage of a student, or a, uh, you know, a doctor is taking advantage of a patient, or such like. There are many, many protocols about, about that. Uh, the, um, and then lying in terms of fraud and, uh, and you know, seeking self-advantage. So not just lying to impress people, but you know, lying to, to steal or to deceive and to um, say... Uh, uh, Usually connected with, with theft, but also um, the, the way that you present yourself, the way you want to be seen in public. So there's truth in advertising, truth in business, you know, uh, you know, honesty in those areas. 
And then the fifth precept is uh, about how if you, if you take drugs and alcohol, then the first four, four precepts uh, have a lot less power. You know, the, as I was saying, the, uh, the, the wall keeping the reptiles in, is, you get a hole in the, in the fence so the, the dinosaurs, the velociraptors get out and start uh, causing trouble. So uh, the, um, the quality of wise reflection that Yoniso Manasikara, that's really essential in that. If you stop to think, you stop to look, and you really consider, okay, what's the effect of that? Yeah, I told that lie, I felt I had a good reason, how does it feel? I had a really good opportunity to defraud the company, no one would have known. Uh, how does that feel that I was about to do it? <laughs> or I did do it? <laughs> how does that feel? Or that I didn't do that. How does that feel? And so that you are um, using that quality of wise reflection to look, to explore. And then, and then you, what you're doing with that is you're helping that, your own uh, goodness of heart to be what guides uh, what's right and what's wrong, what's good to do, what's bad to do. Rather than uh, me obeying rules, it's the natural disposition of the heart. So I said, you know, an arahant can do whatever they like. What they like to do is to be harmless, to be honest, to be respectful, to be, <laughs> to be a, a few needs and so on. Okay. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, my question was related to what Surabhi and what you mentioned about um, kind of gender equality in the monastic uh, world. Um, and I wanted to know what's your take on the Bikuni movement that has begun of uh, Anukampa Bikuni project, which is now existing in And actually, she, Venerable um, Chanda, she's an old friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know because she actually expressed this to me, saying that if only there was a little bit of support from that tradition, things would really blossom for them. And uh, I know you're the abbot of Amravati. Recently, I, um, just before I came here, we heard a short um, talk on uncertainty by you, where you mentioned Venerable Anandabodhi and uh, Venerable Kemuka, who became a new Siladara. And I know there's a lot of fluctuations. When I was in Amravati in 2004, there was a lot of unrest then. And so I wanted to know a little about that. Really? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, um, so I was invited to be the abbot of Amravati. Uh, so, uh, in the um, at the same time that there was uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, kind of turbulence in the community, uh, Ajahn Brahmawangsa had just launched his bhikkhuni ordination in Australia, October of two thousand and nine. Uh, and that um, uh, there was um, about uh, 20 Siladara in the community in England uh, at that point. And then with the Bikuni ordination in Australia and then all of the, the kind of, um, uh, say, the, the views and opinions and feelings uh, rolling around about that, because he carried out that ordination without consultation with anyone. He told Ajahn Sumedha a week before it was going to happen. 
Uh, I actually was with Aya Tatailoka, who was the preceptor. I arranged her transport to the airport for her to fly to Australia from a conference. And she didn't tell us where she was going or what she was doing. So there's this whole atmosphere of secrecy. Uh, I was, I was the, the secretary, the registrar for a monastic conference. Uh, and so she was at the conference, Ajahn Pasna was at the conference. There's you know, a lot of us from our community and she was she knew she was going to be leaving the conference, going to Australia and conducting this ordination in one of our monasteries to create the first uh, bhikkhunis with, uh, with our, uh, from our group. And she didn't tell us. Uh, and so there's this kind of weird secrecy uh, about it. And uh, that Ajahn Brahm basically said, well, I, knew, I, I didn't ask permission because I knew they, w- they would say no. So I thought I'd ask for forgiveness afterwards. Okay, that's a, a well-worn tactic over the centuries. Many have used that. But uh, he also recognizes that he grossly misunder, you know, misconstrued the situation. He totally underestimated the degree of, of, uh, of feeling that would be created by that non-consultative attitude. And because also there was due to be a Sangha meeting at his monastery in Australia, a number one item for discussion on the the, the, the agenda was bhikkhuni ordination. So we were all about to go there, to Australia, to, to talk about it uh, in January. But he preempted that by carrying out the ordination beforehand. So it was, uh, there was a lot of weirdness to the whole thing. That he didn't want to talk about it because he thought people would say no, so he, he acted before. So uh, the response of a lot of people is like, what the hell are you doing? Even if they were sympathetic, you know. For myself, I've been sympathetic to the idea of bhikkhuni ordination since I first read uh, Edward Konzer's history, you know, short history of Buddhism in like 1981. I thought, well, that's, that's something to put effort into, restoring that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, if that can be done in this lifetime, great. To be honest, I'm happy to be recorded saying that. I've said it many times before. But you know, the way that Ajahn Brahm went about initiating it, uh, even though he said, I wasn't involved, I didn't carry out the ordination. Because <laughs> the nuns did the ordination. Basically, it wouldn't have happened if he had not you know, catalyzed the whole thing. So anyway, cut a long story short, um, uh, in December of 2009, I got invited to be Abbot of Amravati. And so there was the, 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 the ripples from the bhikkhuni ordination and then the kind of disquiet within the nuns community was very, very uh, prominent within the community. So I came to England in July of 2010. I kind of wrapped everything up as co-abbot of Abayagiri in California, moved to England. And the image that I gave to people was, what's it like? I said, well, it's like climbing aboard a crashing train, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was challenging. But I felt, well, and then there was a lot of uh, opinions and views rolling around, particularly, yeah, you should, you should, you should. <laughs> And I have been friendly, you know, friendly with Ajahn Brahm, friendly with uh, the nuns community, friendly with, uh, you know, everybody involved uh, on sort of both sides. And there was this petition to try and get Ajahn Sumedho to to support Ajahn Brahm and to, um, uh, say, back up the Bhikkhuni ordination. But the, the, there was just a lot of division and a lot of heat from Thailand and the, the, between Thailand and the Western monasteries. And, and um, so anyway... Uh, not to create more confusion <laughs> and difficulty, the, 
uh, what I, uh, I, I had this strong sense of, uh, uh, of it would be a mistake to come out with some kind of declaration like I disagree with Ajahn Sumedha's point of view and I, instead of that I'm going to do this and this is, what, uh, this is the way it should be uh, because I had this insight uh, as things were unfolding over that first part of 2010 and as I was moving there and settling in that there's no such thing as nuns or monks there's, there's this monk there's this nun, and there's her story, her life, her mind, her family, yeah, her personality, her body, you know, her thoughts, her feelings. And so there's so much in the kind of blogosphere and people's uh, <laughs> incredible amount of, of uh, web traffic uh, on the issue, uh, people, uh, people expressing their feelings. And it's all about what nuns should do, what monks should do, how monks should be, what Theravada should be, Buddhism should be. And it was also theoretical and generalized. And so I had this strong feeling of like, okay, I'm just going to meet everybody. So that during that first uh, three months I was at Amravati in 2010, I sat down with everybody in the community, yeah, every woman, every man in the, in the community, and had an hour, two hour conversation with everybody, one by one, just to meet the people that were there. The ones who wanted to stay, and the ones who wanted to leave, and the ones who were kind of mm, not quite sure. <laughs> Uh, the ones who had, uh, you know, these bloody nuns or these bloody monks. And, and, uh, and they're like, I don't know what the problem is. Yeah. And just receiving everybody. And so, uh, and then I found that was such a, uh, there was such a, a beneficial result from that. I thought, right, this is the way to go. To not, not theorize or generalize or, or work in, in sort of abstract principles, but to say, what is going to benefit this person's life? What's going to be helpful to this person? And so, you know, I'm not averse to Ajahn Brahm or what uh, Sister Chanda is doing with the Anukampa project. Uh, I know her, I mean, I've met her many times. And, you know, she wanted to stay at Amravati, but she had dietary problems, and so she couldn't join the Siladara community because she had to eat in the evening. So um, she then moved to Australia and joined Ajahn Brahm there. But um, what I, I've been doing uh, over the last few years is because um, basically... Uh, Wat uh, Bapong, our main monastery, we're a branch of that. They, they accept uh, the the Thai uh, Sangha Council's decision that the Bhikkhuni order, order can't be restored. Wat Bapong stands by that. We're a branch of Wat Bapong, so that's what we have to go with. The Siladara ordination was created by Ajahn Sumedho in 1983 and then developed over the subsequent seven years incorporating the, the bhikkhuni rules, the bhikkhu rules, the novices rules, to craft a discipline of about 150 precepts to support women monastics in the modern age. So the, the, the foremost Thai uh, scholar, uh, academic, um, Venerable Payuto, who's now kind of someday, he's one of the most high-ranking monks in Thailand, he uh, had like a two-hour session with myself and, and five of the senior nuns in Thailand, and uh, he, his feeling is that the Siladara form that Lumpur Sumedha created based on the Ten Precepts, so this is ideal for women's monastic training to fit in with the, uh, the, the so standards of Thailand and what, what can be usable because it takes all of the best aspects of uh, women's monastic training and makes it workable, makes it usable. For example, one of the bhikkhuni rules, the uh, Sangari Sesa rule, that you know, all bhikkhunis are supposed to keep, is that you should never be more than a four-arms distance away from another nun if you're outside the monastery overnight. 
So as a nun, a bhikkhuni, you cannot travel alone. You have to be with another bhikkhuni, and that's a, a serious rule. That's a, a sangari says a rule, you have to go through a whole, if you break that rule, you have to go through a whole formal procedure. So a bhikkhuni traveling by herself is breaking that rule on a daily basis. So, you know, the Siladra don't have that rule. If they travel, they have to travel in a safe situation or to make sure they have tickets or they have a... a um, they're not putting themselves in a risky, situa- a risky position, a risky situation. But they don't have that rule. Bhikkhunis have that rule. I've had many discussions with Ayatatha kind of trying to massage the rule to kind of mean... It doesn't really mean that a nun has to be with another nun. But it's absolutely unequivocal in the Pali. If you are taking that ordination, that's a rule you should be keeping. So, uh, in principle, I'm totally happy with uh, the bhikkhuni ordination and uh, supportive of it, but uh, uh, I would feel if people take the ordination, they should take the, the whole package, not just kind of be editing the, the precepts according to their wishes. The sila draft form is edited, but it's not pretending to be a bhikkhuni ordination. It's a monastic form that's been sort of put together. So in, in the Christian world, it's rather like um, the, uh, say, the Episcopalian Church, like the Church of England, got for, broke away from the Catholics and formed the Church of England. They're, they're not governed by the Pope. Or the Methodists, they're not governed by the Church of England. They don't have bishops. Or the, the, or the, um, like the Quakers, they don't have bishops. So it's a, it's a religious form. It has its own validity. And um, the main thing is what serves the women who want to, to train in monastic life. So, you know, Sister Chanda might say she'd like a bit of support, but also uh, it doesn't really help that Ajahn Brahm says something, things like, at last uh, uh, monasticism for women has been, can be established in England. Didn't go down very well with my sisters. Like, what have we been doing for the last 35 years? Thank you very much. So, you know, if he says that in a public talk and so goes into print saying that kind of thing, like, well, you know, not trying to be small-minded, but really, you know, doesn't make one want to sort of step up and say, how can we help? <laughs> if you say what our women have been doing, training in this discipline for the last 35 years, is totally valueless, then it doesn't help. It's like the Catholics saying, you know, Methodism or, or the Quakers are, are you're, not, you're not Christians, your, your faith doesn't count, your, your, your life in the, in the, in the spirit of, of the uh, of um, the, uh, the church is, is totally invalid. So, well, thank you very much. May you be happy. <laughs> you do your thing, I'll do mine. So, I'm not trying to be aversive or difficult, but it's just, I say, okay, well, she's very happy to have her project, you know, I'm fine with that, she can do her thing, but I don't quite honestly feel terribly inclined to call her up and say, what can I do for you? Because of... of um, the way that Ajahn Brahm has kind of presented it, and, and that um, the uh, the kind of um, uh, say the devaluing of what the, the women of, of my community have been doing for all these years. So the um, you know I, I realise this is all being recorded, so I'm <laughs> cautious about uh, uh, these words being taken out of context because during that time, 2009, 2010, there were lots of things that. Myself, Ajahn Pasma, and others were quoted as saying they were kind of, they were true, we did say them, but were kind of being quoted out of context. And so creating more division. So I'm not trying to be divisive, um, but I feel that uh, for the time being, you know, if Ajahn Brahm hadn't carried out that ordination, I mean, it's 
it's all t- you know, 10 years ago now, but nearly 10 years ago, then, uh, and if things had been discussed, it would have taken like maybe five or 10 years of discussion to kind of work it through, but I feel if it had been worked through and people had been kind of brought in, just as the Sangha in, in, in Thailand, they're quite okay with people in England having breakfast or wearing jackets and that, okay, it's kind of weird, we're not familiar with it, but okay, you know, we, can, we can go with that. Um, I feel it would have, it would have been a, you know, something that could have been worked into, into being. But because of the sort of summary way that it was sort of done without consultation, that kind of, basically I felt he's put everything back 30 years. And then we just have to be more patient. But along the way, what you have in Thailand is a bunch of, of um, uh, women who've taken bhikkhuni ordination who are quite happily kind of carry on doing their own things in, in, in their own monasteries. Up in the Chiang Mai area, the uh, Nirotaram Monastery, there's a bhikkhuni uh, community happening there, and uh, other places in Thailand are springing up, and with support from the local Sangha. And uh, kind of, technically, it's illegal to be a bhikkhuni in Thailand. But they're kind of, you know, also the Thai government has a way of kind of ignoring the laws when they want to. <laughs> so they are, uh, I've met some of the nuns from the Nirotaram in, uh, in Chiang Mai, and I'm quite happy the nuns from our community have gone to visit them and stay with them. So uh, I don't feel that's, that's out of place or, or out of order at all. But uh, in response to your particular question about couldn't you help Sister Chanda, it's like, well, I could uh, possibly. But you know, it's just like if it's you know it's family, you know? Uh, and that uh, if uh, if things have been done in a different way, uh, then yeah, and that's okay. I'm not I'm not blaming you, but it's just you ask the question, so I'm, I'm giving you the sort of the straight scoop, and uh, you know this how it really sits for me. I'm not hiding anything or like that, but it's just if you want to know why, that's why. <laughs> And that uh, I, I genuinely wish her the best. I mean, I check out the the the, uh, the how things are for her. Many people who visit her or support her come to Amravati and uh, kind of get news. But um, she hasn't come to see me. She'd be welcome to visit if she wanted to. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, but I think within the in the Buddhist world, the religious world, it's like you know, quite happily, uh, you do your thing, I do mine. You know. The Nigmas and the Kagyus and the Drukpa, the Drukpa Kagyus and the Karma Kagyus. You know, okay, you're the Drukpa Kagyu, you do your thing. Yeah, we're Karma Kagyu, we do our thing. And we're the Gelugs, okay, and you're the Nigmas, okay, you know. Okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Okay, are we cool? We're cool. My thing is not your thing. But, you know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, we find a way. Like you know, the Methodists that do their thing, and the Quakers do their thing, and the, the Anglicans do their thing. I was just in Rome. I was in, in the Vatican three weeks ago. Interesting. <laughs> and so, uh, the um, you know that within your own sphere, you know, I feel it's uh, if you, as long as you recognize that what you're doing can only be a skillful means. And you genuinely, genuinely see going kind of rewinding to the practice we've been looking at this week, rather than uh, sort of social issues. If you really recognise that the world I experience is my version of the world, then you can get along. You don't have to carry other people around. You don't have to create them. You can quite happily sort of do your thing. You can be attuned to what others are doing, but and you don't think that your thing is the one real thing. 
the one real world or the the the, um, the one reliable view of reality. <laughs> but uh, you're m more able to work and, and say bring your attention to what you do, and uh, to say well this is my version of the world and to be comfortable in that. And then you find you can live very respectfully and easily with, with others, and just they can, uh, you're happy to let them uh, go on about uh, their life in their own way. So people the, the, in Thailand, there's this monastery that, um, called um, Tamagai, what Tamagai, uh, that are very powerful, very rich, very influential force in Thai Buddhism, but uh, very an un, a very uncomfortable presence to much of other uh, other Thai Buddhists, <laughs> and they're they're very commercially successful, uh, they're very well organized, and they have you know, very particular views on Dhamma and Dhamma practice, and um, so people will say, "What's your opinion about Dhamma guy? You know, what Dhamma guy?" And I say, "I have no opinion about what Dhamma guy." <laughs> what? <laughs> they you know it's like that they're the opposition or they're the other they're kind of they're dangerous they're bad you know. or what's your opinion about about islam say so, well i don't really have an opinion about islam you know i meet muslim people from time to time but i don't have a fixed position about islam what so just to um uh, in a sense be um using the practice to relate to your own sense of of um, what's right and what's wrong, or what's what's good and what's bad, what's uh, uh, say what you are or what you find valuable or, or um, inspiring to you, and to to recognise other people see things differently. The people who get great benefit from what Dhamma guy, fine. You know, if they ask me for their advice, then I'll, I might give it, but I don't have to start a war against what Dhamma guy or against Islam. You know, or against you know the, the Anglican Church, you know, it's a, it's a it, uh, which might seem kind of a bit wishy-washy. They know you should stand up for what's right, but then that very urge to stand up for what's right can be that grasping of self-view. I'm right, you're wrong, and even if you're correct, that very attitude of I'm right, you're wrong which is the title of one of my little booklets on loving-kindness. There's a, a booklet on loving-kindness called I'm Right, You're Wrong that I did a few years ago while the Bikuni issue was hot. <laughs> yeah, Jack Cornfield invited me to lead a day-long about the Bikuni issue at Spirit Rock and I said, Jack, really? <laughs> this was in like April of 2010. I said, Jack, come on. So I said, well, I'll, I'll do. I'll, I'll give a, a workshop on non-contention. How about that? <laughs> and I'll mention the the issue with Ajahn Brahm and the Bhikkhuni ordination. Okay. <laughs> so that little booklet, "I'm Right, You're Wrong," came from that workshop. It's on. on it's available online. So within that, I tell a story. Just I know it's five thirty now, but just a, a short story. So, once upon a time, when Ajahn Sumedho was a self-righteous young monk at Wabakong, there was a, a Thai monk who was very loud and very outspoken. And Thai, the Thai manner is usually very kind of restrained and, and non-confrontational. You know, you don't, you don't confront people. But this monk was, was very outspoken, very extrovert, very, very voice was very loud, and was quite kind of aggressive and confrontational with others. So he caused all kinds of ripples and waves at Wabakong. And so the young Ajahn Sumato, being a true 
proper righteous American. This monk shouldn't be this way. He's, why does Najin Chah say something? You know, Lumpur really ought to set him straight. You know, he's really off. You know, this is terrible. You know. But he was a very junior. He was like two or three reigns at that time, very junior monk, so he couldn't say anything. But he's like, this is ridiculous. Why isn't he saying anything? And, th and then there's more and more incidents where this monk was upsetting people and being, you could hear him halfway across the monastery and, yeah, and people were sort of murmuring at the dying shed, you know, like, uh, when they're washing their robes, you know, this monk, you can't do that, this, like that. So uh, uh, the young Ajahn Sumedha waited until Ajahn Chah was away for a couple of weeks visiting the branch monasteries. And at the, the, week, the fortnightly Sangha meeting, um, the senior monk in Ajahn Chah's place said, is there any Sangha business? Yes, I have some business to bring up. And so the young Ajahn Sumedha had his list of all the wrongs of this monk. You know. And the monk is sitting there. You know, every, every monk in the community is there. So, well, you know, I wish to bring this up. This monk's uh, speech is very, uh, it's being heavily criticized. And people are not uh, addressing this. But he, you know, he's very you know, loud, he's aggressive, yeah, he's upset this person, that person, this person, that person. And went through this long list of, of, of wrongs. Meanwhile, monk, the loud monk is kind of <laughs> looking at the, at the grass mat very pointedly. And then uh, at the end of the meeting, yeah, Ajahn Sumedha thought, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Really, really told it like it is. And uh, so the other monks are kind of like, mm. yeah, not liking confrontation. But, uh, and then... Uh, Ajahn Liam, who was the, the second monk uh, who was taking care of the meeting, said, oh, thank you very much, Tan Sumaita. Okay, <laughs> duly noted. <laughs> so then, uh, a little while later, Lumpur Chah comes back from his travels, and of course, word reaches him very fast. And uh, what had happened was that, like, within a day or so, the, the loud monk had just packed his bowl and vanished, gone, left the monastery. So then, uh, Ajahn Chah came back, and he got kind of clued in on this, and, and then he sort of Sumedha, my feet, my feet, come here. <laughs> and kind of took a quiet moment with the young Ajahn Sumedha and said, Sumedha, uh, you know that loud monk um, who was here? He said, yes, yes, sir. yes. And he, was, he, thought, he kind of thought Lumpur would say, well, yeah, well done, you know, someone really needed to let him have it, you know, thank you for that. But he kind of guessed from the look on Ajahn Chah's face. <laughs> it wasn't. And he said, you know, uh, you really did wrong there. Do you think that I didn't notice what his behavior was like? Really? Yeah. Uh, you probably thought, why isn't Lumpur saying anything to him? Right? Probably. Yeah. And that monk had been thrown out of every monastery he'd ever lived in. Wapapong was the last place he could live, because I, I chose to make space for him. You've now shut the door on him. I don't know where he's gone or where he can go. But you, know, you have to take responsibility for that. You know, of course he's loud, he's obnoxious, he's rude, he's, he's, his speech is vile. His, his, and the Thai expression was, bark bark, there, jai di. His mouth is evil, but his heart is good. So, you know, you shut the door on him. So I don't know where he's going to go, what's going to happen. And that's your responsibility. So, you know, you were, uh, you were right in fact. Everything that you said about him, it was correct. Yeah, it was correct. It was right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. Tuk nai kwam ching, pit nai tam. So like, it's right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. So that is a really good lesson. <laughs> so when you know you're right, yes, I've got all my facts, I know I'm right now, 
how can this be delivered? What's the right way to speak about this? Is this going to be helpful? What's useful? What's just venting my spleen? <laughs> and what's actually going to help the situation, help this person? So that you are practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma, not in, in accord with self-view or with your, your feelings. So, uh, so that was, a, and it was, I was quite, in a way quite glad that Jack Cornfield had asked me to, to do that day long and uh, about non-contention because it, it brought up those themes how he, uh, those themes and that they're useful for us to contemplate to understand them. it's so easy to be absolutely right and how many marriages have ended on you know, both partners being absolutely right and then, <laughs> can't stay together and so, uh, so you can be right in fact and you've got names dates places you know you've got quote, you know, you've got evidence recorded evidence to prove you know, your point <laughs> Look, you said, you know, and then, and then, and then. But the very way that you're putting it across is, can be uh, deeply divisive and, and only productive of, of suffering. So let's leave it there for this afternoon. It's gone past 5.30 already. Another time has gone by. This was our last full day together. So I think Praveen was giving a bit of an announcement. So I'm sure we could carry on for a month or two. <laughs> But uh, all good things must come to an end. So tomorrow we'll have the sitting this evening, and tomorrow will be our our final day. If you're experiencing preemptive feelings of loss, and separation, then those are empty, <laughs> transparent, void of substance. I would suggest. Do some chanting. Blessings, yeah. Just to share our blessings, just to close the afternoon. Andamaya nudisanaditanagatayo banama seyam himina punya kamena uba jaya gunutara acharyopakara Chamata pita chanyataka suryo chandimaraja gunawan tanara picha brahmama raja inda chalo kambala chandevanta yamomita manusa chamajata verika picha savesa Tasuki hondu punya ni pakatani me su kanjati vidang tenduki pangba peta womatang imina punya kamena imina udi sena chakipa hangsura bejevata nubadana chedanang ye sandane hina tamayavani banato mama na sandu sabada yevayata jato pawe pawe ujuchitam satipanya sale koviriyamina mara labanduno kasangatun Chaviriye sume bunda di pavaro nato dhamma.
Dhammo Nato Pace Kambodo Chasango Nato Taro Mamam Teso Tamanu Bawe Nama Roka Sanglaban Maybe one last thing to mention about the nuns' community. So at the moment, at uh, Amravati Chithurst and Milntune in Scotland, uh, where the nuns have their own place, I think we have um, 11 Sila and we have like eight Anagarikas. So eight women in training, eight precept training, and looking forward to uh, going into, uh, uh, into well, joining in with the Holy Life so that uh, people are... Um, making use of the training it's, uh, and um, so that uh, I do my best to support them but please do come and see Ehi Pasiko mm-hmm. uh, if you want to find out how it is then there's an easy way just get the get the rupees <laughs> get on a plane <laughs> uh, come and see